Hello and welcome to the Core Perform Corner, where registered dietitians and personal trainers teach you how to optimize your gut health, hormones, and fitness. Our team has utilized the trademark and evidence-based Core Perform protocol to transform over 500 lives mentally and physically. Here at Core Perform, we have three core values that are family, communication, and care. So if you are ready, subscribe to join our family, communicate with us through our Facebook group to ask questions, and we'll take care of the rest. Please remember this episode should not be used as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. And now, let's get on to this week's question. Hey guys, we have a super good, super good, I don't even know if that's correct or proper English. We have a really good um, podcast today to bring you guys because we have two weeks worth of questions I'm gonna pull them up right now um, but it's just gonna be Courtney and I I think oh m- no Nick is here good all right I'm gonna pull up last week's too what's up hey Um, I'm putting up the questions from yesterday, from last week. Oh, Courtney. It's pretty creepy of me to do that. I should probably stop. Long time no talk, Court. I know, right? I miss the sound of your voice. Three minutes. Um, Okay. So why don't we just dive into our corner this week. Um, so, hello and welcome back to the Core Perform Corner. Um, actually, I just realized, I think it's the beginning of the month. So next month we will be announcing, next week we'll announce our giveaway winner for this month. Ashley's on vacation, so otherwise I told you guys this day. Remembered, because Ashley's, so anyways, we will announce the giveaway winner if you guys so we choose one person every month who does the review on Apple Podcasts to give a free bag of protein to. So stay tuned, leave a review, and we will choose a winner once a month. What's with you guys? Courtney, you just got back from vacation. Catch us up. Canada is amazing. Canada is a great place. I got maple syrup. I got poutine. I got ketchup chips. All of those things sound so weird, but like, the can- it's the Canadian way of life. Amazing, Nick. How about you? What's been new? Um, really nothing too super new that I can share. But um, you know, my clients are getting um, or basically my client load in person has picked up and online and um business is is the busy time too so it's just been a lot a lot of work lately so um newest thing for me is that i've read a whole book in the last two weeks uh reading 30 minutes a day making sure i uh while i walk so i think we'll get back into reading more so that's been cool what what book uh the book i just read was um the heck is it I guess I left it. It's um, it's the um, the subtle art of not giving a 
Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I you say what? I couldn't get through that book. To me, it was like way too much yippity dippity. It it is pretty choppy. Like there's like it starts off one way and then just kind of twists a different way. <laughs> like, and... I was like yippity dippity, and then you're like yeah, choppity. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't. It just wasn't to me. It wasn't anything new or novel. But anyways, um, I got like one thing from it. Yeah, I think if, if anything. Uh, that I didn't learn from like the other previous books that I've ever read on that yeah. type of stuff, but it wasn't bad. It was a short read. But anyways, alrighty. Um, on my end, let's see. July Fourth was great. Um, we did. We have more guests here. We've had three guests in the past month, so we've just been doing the whole like touristy thing, um, chillaxing. I'm just full of fun words today. Um, but on the kind of business side and for you guys side, we have a free bloat guide right now going on Facebook group. So we're gearing up for a challenge in the next couple of weeks. That'll be free to enter and we'll be giving free um, core perform approved recipes, a grocery list. Like it's free to enter. There'll be daily challenges, daily lives. Um, and then whoever participates the most will win $500. So that's going to be coming up this month. So if you're not in the Facebook group, make sure you check out the description of this podcast, join the Facebook group. You guys can always answer, ask questions in there too. Hey, Denise for joining. Um, alrighty. Let's get into the questions now. So how long do the effects of taking a probiotic last? If you were to stop taking one tomorrow, would my gut change tomorrow? Um, yeah. And the reason being is because your gut changes every single day. It changes every single moment you put food in your body. Um, now, those acute changes, they probably will take like three days to take place. Um, medium, I would say, would be like four to six weeks for us to see some really significant changes. And that's just based off of the literature. Um, and then we also have like long-term kind of a microbiome footprint like a DNA footprint that gets established in us when we're babies. Um, and that can kind of be a baseline of what your gut kind of fluctuates off of too. So um, those would be the major one, kind of the major timelines, I would say, for probiotics. Are the adaptogens found in coffee, mushroom coffees enough to alter the stress response? What do you think? I mean... Personally, I would argue no. When I've looked at the, the research comparing, like you're doing like an encapsulated form of like those adaptogens and like reishi and like lion's mane and all of those types of mushrooms, it's very like highly concentrated. Whereas like the stuff in like the um, mushroom tea, what's the brand called? The really popular one? Four Sigma. It's like, it's still in there, but it's not as effective because the the dosage and the quality isn't as good so like yeah you could drink it but would it like be the same as taking like a pure encapsulated like high quality adaptogen no i'm actually going to be an advocate like four sigmatic does a really good job at i think they put like 500 milligrams in each coffee which is great but 500 milligrams okay are we going to do that three times a day now or what are we going to do here like who's going to want to be drinking that much adaptogenic well like so is it is it like coffee ground and you're like making your own from it or is it like in concentrated like serving sizes that it's like that in each serving size because i know like you know serving like a you know if you have a thing of ground coffee it could be 
you know, all kinds of different. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyways, our two cents is that it's probably not enough to alter the stress response because you'd have to be really consistent with it. You'd have to have a, a proper dosage of it. And the ones that are found in coffee, they're good, but they're not enough to alter your stress response. They're kind of best to give you like an acute response, maybe I would say, um, but maybe not so much a long term health benefit. Yeah. Un to be honest, unknown. Um, so next question. I know artificial sweeteners are bad for so many reasons, but could you explain why they're bad for the gut? Is it better to say like regular Coke instead of Coke Zero? And I will do a follow up. Or for example, if Coke decided to make a coconut sugar Coke, would coconut sugar be better? Um, she didn't ask that, but I'm adding it in. I'm surprised I haven't done that yet. Yeah, I know, right? I want I want that money when, when they make that product. <laughs> um, but yeah, when it comes to sugar, it's the same thing. Coconut sugar, brown sugar, I don't care what kind of sugar it is. It has the same exact effect on the gut. Um, and it has the same effect on your blood sugar in general, like the way that you digest it and absorb it. And it spikes your blood sugar just the same amount. The, the bacteria that feed on it are likely going to be very, very similar, if not exactly the same. So it has the same effect no matter what type of sugar it is when it comes to actual like glycemic response of a sugar. If we're going to talk about things like brown sugar, coconut sugar, um, white table sugar, I don't care what it is. It's that's going to be bad for the gut. Um, now, when it comes to Coke Zero and artificial sweeteners, which one's better, right? Is it the inflammatory sugars or is it the inflammatory artificial sweeteners? And I don't think that we know for sure which one is better or worse when it comes to the gut. But when it comes to other health markers, yeah, of course having Coke Zero is going to be better than having regular Coke because you're already drinking the same other chemicals, bubbles, everything else that's in it. Like, let's at least get out the sugar in it. Um, artificial sweeteners. The way that I like to say it is sugar is going to kill you. Artificial sweeteners might take a little bit longer to kill you. <laughs> and water is going to be best <laughs> to keep you alive. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add? just very situational like the, the way that i think about it too is like if i have a client who has type 1 diabetes and wants to indulge in a soda i'd be like yeah you do the coke zero if i have a gut health client with SIBO, i'm gonna be like yeah let's ha not have you do either but yeah. artificial sweeteners because it's it's gonna cause more bloating and discomfort and not be great for your microbiome so very situational but yeah um, all right, next question. If there is elevated anti-gliadin IgA levels while following a gluten-free diet, should someone get tested for celiac? Or when someone gets tested, or when should someone get tested for celiac? Um, so anti-gliadin levels are one of the markers that come back on the GI map, just basically allowing you to see if you are reacting to gluten. And so um, it is an actual marker of your reaction to gluten. So you could have, you could not have celiac disease and just be reacting to the gluten, right? That's why we look at your IgA levels that you are 
uh, in a heightened immune response and are responding to gluten, and then we will test you. Mm -hmm. However, if you just have elevated anti-gliadin levels, that is pretty situational and basically is just an indicator of dysbiosis. Um, I would not go and move forward with a celiac panel, um, but this does bring up to question, right? Because if I'm following a gluten-free diet, why is my anti-gliadin showing that I'm reacting to gluten if it's not in my diet? Reason being is it is in your diet, honey. Um, unfortunately, um, I hate to break it to you, but cross-contamination is a real thing. Um, it might be in one of your supplements. It might be in your toothpaste. It might be in something else. Um, but you're responding to it and you're reacting to it. So it's probably in there somewhere. Um, other things that have come up too is like I've had strict people like um, Adrian, for example. You know how strict she is, right? She, her GI mag came back and her anti-gliadin was high. And then both of us were like, what the heck? Then we thought, oh, the weekend before was Memorial Day weekend. And she had like chicken tenders with soy sauce on it from her mom that she didn't realize. And so she was like, oh, that must have been what triggered it. Because she took the GI map the exact next day after that day. That makes so sense. Yeah, so then it's like, it makes sense. So you really just have to, if your anti-gliadin levels are high, you just have to really think hard about like, where could I have gotten that cross-contamination before I submitted this test? Um, when it comes to when should you get tested for celiac disease, it's, again, situational, going to really depend. But the main symptoms um, are going to be like bloat, fatigue, nausea. You can have um, celiac disease that doesn't uh, show up as anything either, like you're asymptomatic. Um, but if you guys want to know more about celiac disease and allergies and stuff, we have tons of podcasts on this. So definitely go check it out in our prior history. Um, all right, let's get some CP light questions in there. Any tips for meal timing for a nurse? I work 24 hour shifts where I can eat consistently and then have to sleep extra on the rest of the week, shortening my average day and have a hard time getting all my food in. Tips for meal planning for a nurse. Man, uh, I have a couple of people that work in hospitals and long shifts. Um, what they kind of tell me and what I kind of tell them to do too is um, um, obviously having your meals pre-planned or pre-prepped uh, obviously helps the most. Uh, so you can obviously just heat it up when you can, but sometimes they're caught up in a surgery or something that they're going to be, um, you know, away from a fridge or whatever for a long time, or they can't, they don't have enough time to heat it up and they might have 15 minutes in between the one surgery or the next surgery. So what I normally do at that point is um, tell them to do some more like a protein powder or something, something, Something along those lines, it's really quick and easy uh, to help them hit their protein goal, at least, um, and make sure they're being fed throughout their shifts um, is basically the, the biggest piece of advice that I have. Do you guys have anything that you guys suggest as well on that? I've recommended a lot of just like quick on the go things that don't like have to be refrigerated or can like withstand like being in like a purse or a locker or something. So like protein bites, liquid protein, are you ready to go? Corporate protein. Hint, hint, there, it, there it is. Gotta have the shameless plug. Shameless plug, yeah. <laughs> Rice crispy. It's so good. Um, <laughs> so like, I that like to my way. Made muffins are my favorite um, for like breakfast. Um, frozen breakfast burritos have been like my go-to where I just like make them the night before and then I literally 
throw them in my bag. And then when I would, this was back when I was working at the hospital um, and I'd have to get there at like five in the morning, I would have like a breakfast burrito ready to go that I made like the week before that I literally just like threw in the doctor's lounge microwave and just like ate it in like five minutes. So, that's a cool, that's a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. It takes like, pr like, practice and like time to like prepare ahead of time but like you're doing yourself so many favors if you just make the time to get it done and like set yourself up for success yeah and when it comes to getting all your food in the number one thing i recommend too is again that meal planning because with these people the problem isn't necessarily like getting in the food um it's getting in the food during work hours. Like you might have like a legit 12 hour shift where you are nonstop back to back patients. Like there might be an emergency back to back, like throughout the day, throughout the hospital. So too, with these people, it's kind of helpful to have something that you can at least have in the corridor, like drinks or something, depending on how active you are. So even like protein shakes and stuff like that, that's like liquid calories that you can at least get in will help to prevent you from in the future when you get home, I'm a I'm exhausted B I have to eat like 3000 calories now I'm absolutely and it's just like throws off your digestion your whack so um, liquid calories are your best friend in those situations where you can at least just sip on it in between like really quickly between patients. Um, that's my biggest advice. I've had multiple questions now about xanthan gum guar gum their effects on digestion is it good bad neutral. We have so many podcasts on this and a blog post on this. So I am not going to address it more in this podcast. Just go and literally Google search core perform xanthan gum. And I swear it'll probably pop up. You can also just go through um, in through our uh, podcast episodes and I'm sure you'll find it as well. I'll try and look right now when we're answering some of the next questions to give you guys a fine night exact number to go to um maybe you can talk about this a little Sahili's asking why do you recommend not working out while healing the gut oh my favorite so when it comes to a healing protocol whether it's for dysbiosis hormones something is not right inflammation is high body is not responding to diet to whatever you're trying to accomplish if inflammation is high, adding extra physical activity that is higher intensity that's gonna require your body to work a little bit extra harder to repair the muscle tissue, rep repair glycogen stores, repair oxygen, all of those things that are happening still require some level of energy and some level of inflammation. Even if it's acute, the problem is if your body's already so sensitive and so inflammatory, that extra little bit is just filling up your threshold and your bucket for what you can tolerate. So your healing is going to be very, very slow. Your inflammation is still going to continue to remain high. For a lot of people, like we usually pull back exercise very, very significantly when they're on a gut health healing protocol. So it's just that little bit of extra stress on the body that you need to remove in order to get that threshold down. Exercise is healthy in many ways. It's great stress relief. It's great for boosting your mood, but there is some degree of inflammation that's still going to occur. And because that threshold, that bucket is so full already, every tiny drop that you're adding is going to increase the risk of it spilling over and causing this cascade. That's my analogy that I like to give to my, to my clients. So 
we recommend doing things like mobility, walking, stretching, yoga, things that isn't going to skyrocket your heart rate crazily above, not going to require tons of energy repletion. If you're causing your muscles to have all these micro tears and needing to be replenished, that's extra energy that's going towards that process instead of healing your gut. So we want to optimize healing your gut and your hormones as much as possible. Awesome. Word. I just am going to put the link to the xanthan gum discussion and the link to the blog post in the description of this podcast episode. So for anyone who's interested in that, you can check that out. Um, Grass-fed versus pasture-raised versus animal products. Is there a benefit to the differences between them? Yeah. Yeah, um, this has to do more, and we've talked about this too previously on a podcast where, um, I'm trying to find it again now, but it, this is hopeless to try and do at the same time for me. Um, but when it comes to grass-fed and pasture-raised, the, there's new evidence to suggest that because the ruminants, which is the stomach of the cow, is so complex that it really doesn't matter if you buy grass-fed or not. The reason also being is that most of the cattle in America is grass-fed and they're just grain finished. So by that point, it's like, well, their majority of their life, which means that the majority of them as a cow, their meat, biological processes have been grass-fed anyways. Um, and with their ruminants, again, with their stomachs being so good, um, is there really a point in buying grass-fed beef? So from this argument, I believe it's uh, Rob, Rob, um, the paleo guy. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? Um, yeah. Um, he's saying he just put out this literature to suggest that it, it might not be that important. But when it comes to things like turkey, chicken, eggs, dairy, that's where the organic pasteurase is going to be more important versus a cow, which is has the just digestive capacity to really go through and process a lot of everything that it eats. Um, now, I think there's two conversations to be had around that too, um, around like glyphosate and the actual chemicals that they're eating in that. Um, but there's so much more to that. It's so hard because like, look, yeah, maybe they're not eating like glyphosate rich corn but now they're eating glyphosate rich grass like I don't know I don't know the practices of of doing that I'm pretty sure you would have to like rotate the cattle where they're where they're being raised and then you would have to do some sort of soil repletion right like this is way <laughs> out of my dietitian like scope of practice <laughs> this is like agriculture one-on-one which I have no idea about but in my personal opinion, will I still buy grass-fed and pasture-raised beef products? Yeah, I'd probably opt for that. But I, am I following for marketing? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, like, yeah, 100%. I mean, the differences are so minimal that you really don't have to worry about it, I would say, for beef. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Why is beef so expensive again? What? Why is Wagyu beef so expensive? Do you oh, remember premium cut? It's like the highest fat level. It's like premium. Yeah. At it. One day I want to, but I just every anytime I've had the opportunity, I'm like, ha, oh, just kidding, hundred dollars. Yeah, it's like 
it's like salmon when you go to sushi restaurants, how you can have like three different grades of salmon and like the most expensive ones are usually the like fat fattiest because they'll melt in your mouth and they're just like, they cook better, like things like that. So tastier. Now I'm hungry. I know. Um, next question is from CP Light. Can I make any kind of substantial progress working out a maximum of two times a week? A maximum of two times a week? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and also, I mean, just like everything, it all depends. So, like, if you're a novice lifter and you've been lifting, you know, three to four months and just starting out, you're for sure going to make progress even probably going once a week. Um, if you're someone that's been doing it for 10 to 12 years, you may still make progress. It'll just take a little bit longer. Um, and it all comes down to the quality of your lifts anyways, how much you're sleeping, what your nutrition looks like anyways. It's going to dictate your results uh, mainly. But uh, for sure, you can still make um, big gains off of two days a week. There's Most of my clients are two days a week. Uh, some of them are three, but most of them are two. And honestly, like, uh, even with their nutrition and all that, not even in a great place, they don't, like, change physically that much. But their strength continues to go up. So I know they're building new muscle, and uh, they're giving me good effort, and they are getting stronger because the logbook shows it and the cool. effort's there, too. So. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely gain it off two days a week for sure. Get it in when you can. Last question from CP Light. You guys talk about systemic stress. Is that different than mental stress? I mean, I mean, I feel like stress is stress in a sense. Um, I feel like, the, you know, like obviously the different stresses hit you differently and different parts of your body reacts differently to it. But overall, it's all stress, it's all inflammation, uh, all needs to be dealt with um, around the same way. Um, so, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts? I mean, yeah, coming from experience, like if I, my mental psychological stress gets to a certain threshold, it physically makes yeah. me, like my recovery is I have anxiety, my heart is racing, like I have digestive issues. So like, yeah, I would definitely argue that like, at a certain point, unprocessed mental stress can play into that systemic stress and that pathophysiological stress. 100%. Yeah, guys, at the end of the day, 100%, your mental stress and your physical stress are exactly the same. It's still a fight or flight response from your body. So they are the same um, in the sense of how we respond to it and how our hormones respond to it. And that's why it's so important to tackle both, because if you're still stressed mentally, your physical self is going to be stressed as well. Um, Absolutely. So next two questions I'm going to run through because we're running short on time. First one's from Demi. Broccoli, spinach, kale, and, other, and a few other greens cause me unbearable gas pains and bloat. I stopped eating them because of it, and so my greens intake is so minimal now. What do I do? First of all, download our top five um, bloat tips that we're sending out this week because we talk about one of these things, which is cooking down your food. Um, cooking them down can help for absorption, but also can help to reduce the amount of air that you swallow because it's no longer like a, a, um, a crunchy thing that you need to consume. Broccoli separately and kale also, I believe, has raffinose in it, which is an undigestible um, sugar and some people just react much more strongly to it 
cooking down your vegetables not only will enhance the nutrient benefit from it, so you get actually to absorb and extract more of the nutrition from it when you cook it, but also it helps to break down those fibers so you can digest it better as well. So cooking down food is one of the greatest things that has happened to humanity, which is why once we learned how to make fire, um, we were able to explode as human beings. Um, but I won't get too far into the paleo diet <laughs> from my master's degree any further. Next question, Erin is asking, this is the last question, how can psyllium help with both constipation and diarrhea? Can you explain a bit about how that works and what are recommending starting dosages? You can start with like three grams, and increase slowly every day. The most important thing is to add water as you taper it up. And this is exactly why the mechanism of action of psyllium. Um, and this is also why it helps with both constipation and diarrhea. So psyllium works by binding, um, binding your stool more and pulling water into the gut to help it pass. So it can help with constipation because if you're taking psyllium, it's bulking up the stool and putting, pulling more water into the gut. It can help to pass if you have constipation. If you have diarrhea, it's bulking up the stool and allowing it to pass as a solid stool instead of as diarrhea. So it helps with both, um, depending on the person and depending on what's going on in their intestines and how their intestines respond. Mm -hmm. But the recommended dose I would start with is like three grams for a normal person, see how you tolerate it, make sure you're getting enough water in and then slowly increase as well as increasing your water. That is so important. Otherwise it will make you feel worse. Um, do you have anything else to add to that? The other thing I always like to um, tell my clients about, they're like, why is it beneficial? Like, what does it do? I always explain that part first. And then the second part I explain is it's literally pure powdered fiber that your bacteria love to feed off of. When you're giving your microbes that optimized bacteria as fuel, they're able to digest them, break them down, produce short chain fatty acids, which is one of the most amazing healthy compounds that your body can have. So it's kind of a two for one when you're taking psyllium husk you're helping your motility and helping your digestive issues, but you're also feeding your good bacteria in your gut as well to produce all of the acids as well. So kind of a win-win. We love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the last question that we had of the week. The, oh, the last thing I want to add about the psyllium husk is that if you're taking, if you have like colitis or ulcerative colitis or something like that, where you have like severe diarrhea, you can definitely taper up faster than three grams a day. Um, that was just like my statement for the general population. So always make sure that you talk to a registered dietitian. Nothing on this podcast is medical advice. Make sure you talk to someone who can give you a more specific game plan there. Um, okay, with that said, thank you guys all for joining. Be sure to join the Facebook group if you want more of this information or to join our upcoming bloat challenge. Um, we'll be collecting questions there for next week also. Alrighty. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. See ya.